Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and play styles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, and some opposing efforts on the other side. This series features a deep dive into the Dungeon Master's Guide or DMG Rule Supplement series of books. What advice can we take from those books and use in our current games? And that is whether you're playing 5th edition, 4th edition, 3rd edition, 2nd, 1st, whatever game you're playing. You playing Astonishing Swordsman? Awesome. Playing Castles and Crusades? Awesome. Playing Pathfinder? Awesome. What can you take from this and use in that game? On this ninth day of Edition Wars, my DM gave to me the Complete Book of Villains Part 3. This second edition AD&D sourcebook was written by Kirk Botula and was published in 1994. DMGR6, as is known, is the sixth in a series of nine DM-focused books for the second edition of D&D. You might recognize these as the blue faux leather softcover books. It's not really faux leather. It's more meant to look like leather, and it has this nice kind of sheen, but it's not really faux leather. Nowadays, it's much more common to find a leather book that is actually within a price range that somebody could afford. But back then, this was as good as you could get. <laughs> it, it's not really even faux Nogahide. No, it's not. It's, it's not even, not fake suede. No, no, it's not. But it does have a lot of good things between the covers. It, and in the last true. episode, we finished chapter seven. And we only have three, what, three or four chapters left in this book. But three, it looks like, eight, nine, and ten. But these three chapters are real meaty. So let's get down to it. And when I say let's, that's because there's more than me. You just heard his voice a moment ago. My wonderful co-host, Brandis. Hello, sir. Hi. So this is a, this is a interesting chapter to move into. Um, chapter eight, creative villainy. Um, it, it's going to bill itself as a, way to introduce new villains, which it's a, it's a little bit of a misstatement of what it does, but what it does is more important than that in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, that's not rare in this book. No, it's not. It's not. The, the it's, chapters are misnamed and the intros to the, most of the chapters after chapter one are really not really telling you what the chapter's doing, <laughs> yeah. but that's okay. Um, I, I think that creative villainy is a fine chapter title. Um, it's, it's as good as anything else they were going to come up sure, with, sure. but this is about essentially, okay, but why are you a villain? What, what put you there on your path to villainy? Um, and it starts with milking your encounters, which um, it, it's, it's trying to talk about um, following up on player actions, things mm-hmm. they things done and things left undone um the the example in the the box text is things left undone um (laughs) but you know uh, it's what i think of as uh finding you know loose threads to pull in in any encounter Mm -hmm. to just like follow up with a consequence of some kind and uh, uh Plenty of villains can come out of, you know, um, you, you left us to die because you were off helping someone else. Well, I'm going to get revenge on you for that or whatever. Whatever kind of decision the players make, you can try to figure out who it harms and it's, follow up on that. 
it's sort of the equivalent of if the party's in a dungeon and they leave the dungeon, the dungeon's going to refortify, right? All the factions in there are yep. going to put new sentries at the door and reset the traps and all that. It's sort of that idea, right? In other words, follow up on the things that have already happened and make the world change based on what the party did. Yep. Um, and the, the examples here are perfectly cromulent. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the, this is the one that, you know, I regard as really central to almost all plot running. Just if you're, sure. if you're going to have multiple sessions of a game, as much as possible, you want to be following up on consequences of player actions and, you know, accumulating that, that, um, that, that sort of tapestry of action. Right. This is the how to make the world feel alive kind of right. issue. Yeah. Um, and that then leads us into hero created villains, um, which is kind of more of the same, but more direct. I mean, they're using an example of um, Superboy creating Lex Luthor as a villain because of basically making his experiment go wrong. And mm-hmm. um, a lot of these are going to come across in actual play as either, dude, my dice betrayed me, I don't know what to tell you. Or, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, it was an accident. It was just an accident. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, to be fair, it gives kind of three ways it could happen that the, that the PCs make a, make someone turn to villainy. Right. And it's trying to be, it's, it's trying to give examples of each in a way that makes sense. Um, You know, accidentally and unwittingly creating a villain because the, the collateral effect of something that one of the PCs did, harmed someone and they they are they have enough uh influence to become a villain um or you know making a decision and having an unanticipated consequence right uh also another collateral thing right or um you know and then the last one is intentionally intentionally wronging the villain which um in, 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 it's not as in, oh, we chose to do the dirty on you. It's more of, well, we had a choice and the choice was between two bad things. And so whichever one we choose, the other's going to be wronged. Right. Yep. And so that becomes our fault. And so I get where I get where they're going with this. Um, I wish that they had a little more nuance in this part of the discussion, because I think there's good ways to do this. And it's not a bad technique to learn how to do this sort of thing, because really, as you said, it's really just more of the same. It's really just, okay. well, there are consequences to the choices that the PCs made. Right. And um, especially with this one because you're putting this like, emotional burden on the players of, you know, everything bad this guy does, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, use this judiciously, I will say. D- don't, don't use this for all of your bad guys. Just yeah. some of them are bad because of other reasons than the players made them do it somehow. Mm-hmm. Now it's perfectly fine to have them bad for other reasons, and then they blame the players. The That's PCs, yeah, right? absolutely. Yep. 
That's totally because, good. Yeah, yeah. Because that's a that's a villainous, you know, focus that that villain has created and therefore it makes them the enemy of the PCs specifically. And that can be played upon. It's very tropey, but it works. Um, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, if you screw over a bad guy and then they hate you more, well, I mean, come on. That's actually satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't the reason they were bad. Right. But, right. Now, what you did is the reason you have their undivided attention. Well, that's right. fine. Right. Yeah, that's perfect. Like, yeah. You're not going to feel weird about that. You're going to feel weird if they take out their anger on something you care about and you weren't able to stop it. That's right. Yeah. But you know, and, that's just that's just storytelling yeah. for you. Yeah, exactly. And so the thing is, though, that I, I agree with what you're saying, that some of these amount to basically, well, my dice, you know, my dice. Um, but, but ultimately the thing here is, yeah, use this sparingly doing it once is like a fun switch up of, oh crap, we did that. Whoops. Let's fix it now. Ha ha. You know? Um, and if you play it right, it can be a lot of fun. Um, but if you do it every time it loses its luster real quick, it's sort of like the betrayal when you have a, uh, the NPC betray the party or the patron betrays the party. Guess what? If you do that every time, forget it. It's going to be, you know, not fun anymore. Well, and your, your players just aren't going to want to keep like being vulnerable in the way of making that friendship and caring about that character. Cause they're going to say to themselves, uh, like, yeah, that person's going to stab me in the back. So, yeah. Right. I don't want to get stabbed in the back. I don't want to pin a narrative target on this guy's forehead. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not doing this. Yep. Yep. Um, so, everything judiciously, just keep changing it up. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I mean, you're not going to go through that many patrons, one hopes. So, you know, if, if it's only every other campaign, you make them bad, that's still a little high, but you get yeah. what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I like that there's that they're getting into real discussion of narrative technique here. I think mm-hmm. that's really smart. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and like, the defining moment is is very much helpful in communicating that story. And like, you want something that uh, sort of events have crystallized around, mm-hmm. so that you can make it part of the dialogue with that character and sort of rehash that, that fight. If you need to, that's all to the good. Yeah. Yeah. It has some really good advice here too. It says in a, in a planned encounter, never force the players to choose the path resulting in the Genesis of the villain. Right. Because the thing is that if you force it and if it's really not their choice, then you did not create the connection within them to this situation. All you did was narrated something, forced them to do something, and then made a consequence based on it. But the thing about consequences are consequences are only really effective in the game if the players chose to make their PC do that thing. Right. And and the more you let them know what the likely consequences were, the more informed the choice was, mm-hmm. the harder it's going to hit. Right. Like, th- there's only so much you even could reasonably do because the DM shouldn't know the whole future. Right. But, um, 
at the same time, um, like it's so easy for players to go into a situation with no really credible information and just it all feels like a big gotcha. Mm-hmm. It's, right. Well, like, narrative is improved. We're moving on. Let's right. let's try not to be like that. <laughs> right. 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 Yep. Yep. Um, like this really makes me think of um, uh, Luke Skywalker sort of creating Kylo Ren as a villain, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, we we see that that crystallized moment from both their perspectives a couple right. of times as they retell that story. Yeah, and yeah, we get the Rashomon, which I really love. Right, effect, like yeah. that that retelling and and perspective shift is such an important technique mm-hmm. uh, so that you can have a, a an argument about it that is directly getting at, hey, why are you so bad? Well, here's how I saw this thing that happened. Mm-hmm. All right. Right. Yeah. So that's a, that's a really key thing to do. Um, yeah, and they talk about the return, um, which is kind of there's usually a, a big gap in time between we created a villain and the villain actually does something about it. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't a villain before if you're the one who created them, so they have to go build a base of power to be a problem, right? It, unless you wronged yeah. someone who already had a base of power, in which case that was that was dumb. Should have yeah. done that. Right. Right. Yeah, no, this is the idea of the creation of the villain is actually just the kernel of their their enmity towards you. And now they have to go away because they don't have any actual power or strength in this situation. So they have to go away and level up in mechanical terms so that they can actually be a foreboding enemy to you. And so then this is discussing, well, how do you bring that character back in then? And in fact, this is partly where you don't, you know, when the villain is created, you don't actually have to reveal, ha ha ha, you have created the villain of this campaign. You just have some events occur and then whatever. And the return is where now this person's coming back and the PCs are going to realize, oh, oh crap, that's so-and-so and they we hacked up, yeah. Yeah, we 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 really we really screwed that one up, right? So um that reveal, which is part of that villain's return, is sometimes very satisfying. But it's only satisfying if they understand that their actions led to this, but they didn't know it was gonna happen, but they made the choice and knew there was a tiny chance, right? Like it's this, this is a relatively complex series of events that have to occur. And to really nuance this as a DM, it's, it actually is a higher level skill, right? Which is why it's chapter eight, not chapter one. Yeah. Well, and one of the other really common responses that you're gonna see is the players responding with your who know? And you really want to avoid that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that, one's, yep. that one's not so fun. Right. Um, and that's actually addressed in a previous chapter when they talk about, you know, have the party hear about, you know, you can have them hear rumors of the things that are going on and, and you know, what the villain is is perpetrating. 
outside of the actions, uh, the direct actions of the PCs at the moment. And that's something that you would incorporate between the genesis of the villain and the return of the villain, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, it, it makes me think of you know, the, the um, I think it's from Mad Men, the I don't think about you at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, this is very much sort of a thing where the the, the shoe can be on either foot. The, the PCs can be created as heroes because they're wronged by this villain. Mm-hmm. That's right. a that's another very classic technique. Mm-hmm. And then the villain is the one likely saying, "I don't think about you at all." Right. Yep. Um, yeah, which is. Um, a very powerful thing if the players are really invested, right? Yep. Just like someone being a benefactor because of something that was inconsequential to the PCs at the time. And then later on they learn out, they learn, oh, this person's been a benefactor to us. And then they find out why. And it's something that was so inconsequential to them, but to that person, it was a big deal. There's this show, and I can't even remember what show it was. It was old black and white, you know, sitcom, basically, family sitcom. And this teenager, late teens a person is doing something, and they get like a letter in the mail, and they've been given, you know, they, they, the, someone died and they were, they were in their will. Okay. Or, yeah. or something, right? And they didn't know why they were in this person's will. And the award they got wasn't like life-changing. They're not suddenly rich, but it was money that they needed at the moment. And so it was a really huge boon to them, right? Sure. And so the whole episode is them trying to figure out, well, who is this person and why did they give me this money? Basically, it was like $250 or something. And at the end of the episode, you learn that the whole reason that this person got this money in the will. And of course, this is like 1955. So $250 is quite a bit of money. And um, the reason why is because there was one day when this person was walking by the front of a store or walking by the principal's office or something. And the uh, this other kid was in trouble. And this person sat down and said hello and treated them nicely and then gave them a piece of gum. And the interaction was like five minutes or something. And then they left. And that person was like, at that moment in time, I was in a place in my life where it was the, I felt like I was the most horrible person in the world. And somebody sat down and talked to me and gave me a piece of gum. And it made all the difference that day. Yep. And it's like the amazing, uh, you know, three cent piece of gum, probably not even three cents back then, right? Like change this person's life because it made them feel like maybe they were worthy, right? To stay alive, right? Yeah. 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 And so all those years later, you know, 20 years later, whatever, 15 years later, hey, you know, I don't have much, but I'm giving this to you. Right. And so that's a very, here's back to the point here. And it's really, it's really silly because I can't even remember what the name of the show is, but I remember exactly like the two moments in that show, one where the kid gets the bequeathment and the end when they find out what it was. 
And I remember thinking at the time, oh, that's the dumbest thing in the world because I was a young kid too, right? But sure. it's some for some reason it has stuck with me, and and I think about it every once in a while through the years because it's a powerful storytelling technique to make an inconsequential thing occur, or what seems like an inconsequential thing occur, and then at the end it turns out to be a major force in what's happening. It's it's almost you know touching on the butterfly effect and mm-hmm. karma and the idea of everything being connected, you know, that sort of thing is a very, very powerful pull in, in storytelling. And that works in your D&D game too. And that's kind of what this is trying to get at. Although this is much more blunt, because as we often say, you cannot be that subtle in your game because yeah. the players won't get it. Uh, yeah. Like that, that's a big part of the, just the, that danger of, you uh, who know? And you don't right. You're really trying to dodge that. Yeah. Um, and actually, the um, the text in talking about the return and the plot for revenge is directly addressing like get the get this person into the players' minds for a different like branch of villainy that isn't aimed at the PCs. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they haven't moved on the revenge plot yet. They're moving on their own plot. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to build heat in the players' minds um, against this villain, like separate from why the villain hates them. And, and that's that's actually a really good idea. It's, it's a strong point. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, um, I, I love that they're getting into uh, just like applying this to. Um, to Bakshra, the the villain that has run throughout mm-hmm. the whole book, I think that's really good. Um, yeah, yep. And they, they keep talking about if the villain survives, if the villain survives, and that's that's one element that I'm really going to be curious to see if they get into because how to make your villain not be uh, a three round villain, you know from first appearance to last appearance is three rounds. Right. That's, right. that's a challenge in D and D and something that you should be thinking about. You know, there's, well, there's a lot of good ways to handle that, mm-hmm. but. Well, I think they've already partially given us the answer, right? The, the ways to handle that are narratively and not, not direct opposition or direct combat, right? You can meet the person when you can meet the villain when either you don't know that you they are the villain yet and therefore you know who they are and then you hear about things throughout or you can meet them when they're powerful enough but you can't you can't actually challenge them and then as you gain in power you're hearing about their exploits yep right and but you can't you can't in in D&D it's very hard to have a recurring villain that shows up creates havoc, fights the party, escapes and leaves like 12 times, right? You can't do that because especially in a game like fifth edition, for example, the party's really powerful. And by the time they've met that person twice and the person has disappeared, the next time that person blinks into existence, they, their wizard or sorcerer or warlock is ready to cast a spell that will hold that person in place so that they cannot 
you know, whether they have figured out they need to do anti-magic something or what, you know, they will find a way to stop that person from blinking in and out again. Well, and, and there's a lot to be said for uh, you, your villain thinking in moves and counter moves as far as that right. goes. Mm-hmm. Like one of the approaches that has worked for me a bunch in my, my homebrew campaign um, there's a villain named Rafa who uh, started as a PC. He went bad in his opening adventure, mm. and the player was like, yeah, I'm fine with this becoming an NPC. He's under your control now. Go start a new PC. And that's fine. Um, he was always going to be like really pushing the envelope on what was acceptable to the PCs. Okay. The player is not a jerk. I want to really emphasize that. The yeah. player is fine. This is what he was doing today, and it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it made one of the other players at the, ta- at the table uncomfortable. We discussed it. And like since that character became a, a full-on villain, destroying him became the that other player's just <laughs> soul-consuming drive. Right. Great, great. That's that's great. No no complaints here. We're fine. Um, but what he would do to encounter the PCs and stay alive is very often like wait, you know, hidden for one of them to be alone, and then start the encounter once the person was alone, <laughs> and and he's got a gun drawn. Right. Right. So maybe you can take this guy solo, but. You better be pretty sure, right? Yeah, yep. Um, and I pulled that off a couple times, and then there was another that was, you know, okay, he wants to talk and and not fight, and he's going through this whole thing with a warlock to get you to swear an oath that you won't start a fight, mm-hmm. and he won't start a fight, and so this is going to be a non-fighting conversation, right? 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, and so now they're on more peaceful terms because of other things going on, but um, I still don't like this guy. <laughs> they're never going to be fans of him. Right, right. And so is he more rival status now than than like villain or they just have uh, other, other, other important fish that are in the frying pan right now, so they can't really focus on him? Right. They've kind of had other fish to fry for a while. They haven't yeah. paid a lot of attention to what he's doing or not doing. And uh, they've sort of eclipsed him without mm-hmm. having to you know, throw down with him all over again. Okay. Yeah. Nice. That's fun, right? When you have that sort of odd NPC rival enemy villain, like, you know, there's an obvious power imbalance for a long time and then you don't know what's going to happen. And yeah, that's, that's fun. I like that. And so then the book takes us from, so this chapter is, is presenting several different ideas about how to create interesting villains. And so the next villain on the list after a hero created villain is the villain as servant. And this is the idea of um, taking a villain and putting them in a role within the party where they are the hidden evil Right. So, uh, for example, in the example that it gives, it is a um, 
some sort of demon or succubus that has has a particular goal and needs to use the party to attain that goal and so has um uh disguised herself as something other than herself right in this case a little girl who is presenting herself as a genie okay um or it's a genie in the guise of a little girl uh but it's really not it's a demon and so um you know basically earn the party earn, earn at least one person in the party's trust and then start wreaking havoc and doing things in this case the the villain likes to um be a little girl genie because she can do things and then feign you know a childlike ignorance of oh i didn't realize that would hurt anybody or oh i thought this is what you wanted and that sort of thing and that's a very sort of uh horrible disgusting triggery thing but um it's the example they're using uh, where, right. and you know, I, I would say that your players have to be pretty ready to play along with this as a trope for it to last all the way through the first encounter. Uh, I am at least accustomed to players sort of not being super copacetic with that. Yeah. In a like, if I've if I've asked them to play along, it's fine, or. Or if there's mind control on the table, and that's why it's working, then fine. But like, they're actually yeah. trying to solve the problems, so they're not going to just like, be real stupid, like the guy who gets duped in the example text here. Right. And that's the thing is that um, you know what they don't discuss in here, which I wish they would, is do you tell your party, do you tell your players you know, right. Do, as soon as they start to figure out that this genie is not really a genie, do you just tell them and say, okay, now here's the facts. And then you let them play it as PCs who maybe don't know or are suspicious, but definitely don't know, you know, the truth. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's worthy of, you know, back when this was written, of course, you wouldn't necessarily put that in here. But nowadays, this is definitely something where you would discuss okay, at least in session zero, hey, there might be some enemies in this game that act like doppelgangers or that will uh, charm you really kind of without your knowledge. And you might take the side of an NPC and the other PCs might not. And those situations, you know, are you okay with those and that sort of thing? Um, Yeah, the example, they really make the one PC seem like such a dupe. Yep. Uh, but I mean, yeah, it, it, it's uh, like, I, I'm going to be real. Like the level of technique needed to carry this off and have it actually land in, in the way that they're sort of passing off as being easy mm-hmm. is some serious next level. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I a little bit wish they acknowledged that. And also <laughs> the example they give is actually not that great. Like it right. sounds great at first, but then as you read through what it, how, how it's doing the interactions, it's kind of like, oh, you know, my players are a lot more savvy than that. I mean, they right. just, they're going to look, okay, my players. My, my are players playing, are genre aware. It's fine. Right, right. And it's fine. I'm, yeah, I don't mean that as a derogatory statement, but for example, yeah. there's a uh, an NPC in Rhyme and the Frost Maiden named Velen Harpel. 
Velen. Velen. If you pronounce that a certain way, it sounds like villain. And that was the very first thing they said. Oh, that's, <laughs> was, oh that's is she rough. a villain? Who named this person, right? Um, which is fine because I had already thought of that because I'm well aware that if you name something, you know, a person something, then it's, you know, whatever. And so I played her as if she's not really a villain or maybe she isn't, maybe she is, they don't really know, but she's helping them. So they're accepting her help and she's knowledgeable and powerful. And it's only now that they're just level eight, that they are as powerful as she is and could actually challenge her if something went sideways. I mean, my read on her was, uh, okay, she's not great, but there's a lot of people who are a lot worse. So yeah, yeah, it's fine. She, but the heart wants, calls are always yeah. bad news. They're yeah, just, yeah, yeah. they're just bad. Yeah, but I'm just like the whole point here is her name was the trigger that gave it away for these players. Right? Sure, sure, Your sure, players sure. nowadays are probably going to be, as you said, genre aware. So if they are, it's really hard to pull something like this off on the down low. You're right. not going to do it without at least one of them figuring it out, right? Um, And it's funny that I say that because I just went on a diatribe a few minutes ago telling you not to be subtle and that your players won't pick up clues and whatnot, but they, they do, right? It's just that when it's a, something like this, a situation like this, they're asking different questions and they will pick up those clues and they'll pick them up faster than you think they will. Yep. So it's, I, I wish this part had a little more meat to it in terms of giving advice about, you know, how to address the different issues that could arise, but right. you know, I mean, for the amount of words that they give it, it's, it's an okay section. I mean, thinking about uh, everything from critical role going backward toward uh, Kevin Culp's amazing defenders of daybreak uh, story hour on Ian world and things like that. Um, those, there's there was a thing that you know, at the time we called rat bastard DMing <laughs> of managing to like snow the PCs in just the right way so that they felt in character snowed but mm-hmm. not out of character messed with right right and um, if I had any one sort of wish for the future of game running it is sort of getting that line much in much clearer focus and in the same place for more people because <laughs> yeah it, it feels so great when it works but getting it to work and getting people to let the things that happen in character just be there and not be upset out of character that's that's tough it's tough Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, everyone has to be on the same page, as with so many things, and uh, internet discourse doesn't support that. I guess is what I want to say. Yep, you are correct there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So much of what's in this chapter actually relies on nuance and skill and subtlety, but also kind of knowing your players. Yep. Or, or at least knowing players enough to, not your players, but any players, enough to catch signals and be right. able to adjust your technique as you're going. 
And that, especially online in the days of COVID, where so many of so much of our gaming right now is not actually face to face, even if we're on video, it's not really face to face because you don't get all the body language. Yep. Um, sometimes that's really tough. Yeah, I, I mean, it really is. Um, and this is one of those things that I'm always chasing from LARPing, right? Mm-hmm. I, I talk about how uh, the the really golden moments from LARPing are the ones that do all of this stuff because, I mean, it's all body language. Right. Yeah. You're you're actually face to face with the person, and you know standing and moving around and so on, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and that really helps. Um, yeah. I have uh, I have at at a few occasions been the villain who snowed the PCs. <laughs> um, there was in Dust to Dust. There was a, a really really low end bad guy who. Uh, kept getting sent into town to spy on the PCs and bring back information. And um, I cast myself as this character just as a like personal metagame to see how long he could go on without getting, you know, <laughs> destroyed. Yeah. And I, I kept it going for several years, but not forever. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually yeah. uh, they put enough pieces together to be all done with his. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so that was like he was not hitting himself any kind of capital V villain. Uh, he was really low on the actual villain totem pole. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the really tough thing about that storyline is that the PCs like got their adventure to go have their throwdown with the villain. And this is one of the things that can kind of only happen on LARPing, but because of terrain and like one bad tactical choice, they lost the fight. They lost bad. Mm. And there was no time left in the campaign to give them another shot. Mm. They managed to recover from the, the defeat, but we had no way to give them another shot at the villain without just taking all of the reward out of the whole storyline. Right. I mean, I did try to do something to give them another shot right at the time. It was not one of my better ideas, put it that way. But, um, I mean, not everything's going to work. Ultimately, I think what happened for them was that they sort of, in their minds, wrote their own post-campaign story of, Okay, years later we hunt this guy down for real. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because I mean, they hated that dude. They hated him real good. <laughs> the, the, this this main villain I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had done a good job of building heat with him, and we had uh you know some of the best you know NPC casting that we could have asked for for, for just all of those roles. Yeah, nice. Anyway, that's a long digression to say <laughs> villains. How about them? Yeah. Um, so, but but the, yeah. the the like villainous servant section is ultimately really good. Um, 
I, I like what goes on here. Um, and there, like the, the like party as servant, a party as hirelings. Um, right. That's I mean, sort of the that's sort of the next. They, they've sort it, of yeah, split it is. this. It's a kind of a weird way that they split it, but it's, but that's kind of the next type um, of villain. Right. So, so but, there's there's actually a, just a, a layout flaw in the book. Yeah. The the header um, values aren't different enough visually. Right. Um, like what's basically happening is that. Uh, You've got header two and header three, and they're not visually different enough. Right. Well, so head, header header two is hero created villains, and yes. then and then header two again for the next section because it's a section break is villain as servant, and yep. then party as servant yes. is another different section. No, but it absolutely is. But it's a very like. Yeah. So this is the, and I've noticed this previously because the, the font is not set apart. The sizing of the font is not set apart enough and the coloration is not set apart enough. And that, that has not been a problem in the other DMGR books that we've looked at, but in this one, it definitely is. Right. Um, And and this is fairly wall of texty. Yeah. Well, and that's what I was going to say is because this, this text more than any of the others so far, I think consists of, wall of text with sometimes gray boxes around it. Yep. And that's pretty much it. Now, when you get through that text, again, we keep saying the text is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is valuable text mm-hmm. and, and worth reading. The examples here are uh, pretty meaty, and I, I respect that. Um, what I wanted to say about Party of Servant is just they're describing the Black Company novels by Glenn Cook, and that's the greatest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, where, but when like, were those written? Cause this was, this was before that, right? Cause weren't those early twos? Uh, no, uh, Glenn was still writing in, um, the, the early two thousands. Um, but, uh, he started in 1984. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So this is, yeah. But I'm, I'm not trying to say that, uh, uh you know, uh, Kirk Botula is consciously describing the Black Company. Just oh no, no, no! But it's th- definitely, this is a fine example yeah, yeah. of yeah, yeah. everything that makes the Black Company amazing, right? And they, you know, they start in uh, service to the the Jewel Cities, and then they're in service to the Lady, and mm. it's not fine. Right. <laughs> it's never fine. <laughs> right? Things right. always get worse, yeah. but. Um, and that does a, a mixed job of never forcing evil actions, but it's a novel, so it's allowed. Right, right. Sure. Whereas here, because the players should be making choices for their PCs, right? Um, it does matter, right? And so yep, the, advice, the advice they give is, okay, if you're hired and the party discovers or maybe doesn't discover even that they are working for the villain – but you still can't force evil actions on the on the PCs, and you have to give them good reasons to stay in service, even if they suddenly realize they're the baddies, right? They're effectively the baddies if they're working for the bad guy. Um, and then there's that's as hirelings. The the um, the the uh, suggestion there is, or the maybe implication there as a hireling is, well, they can just quit. 
right. and, and basically forfeit their payment once they realize. So they don't have to be the baddies. Whereas the party that's bound to, so this is the, kind of the next little option, if they are bound to work for or do things for basically a master, um, you know, how, how are you going to do that? And the advice here is really good, actually, about building in loopholes so that even if they sign a contract or if they agree to a particular job, you know, make sure that there's enough leeway in the reading of the job description that they have several choices as to how they complete the task. And as long as they have completed the task by the letter of, you know, what was stated to them that they were bound to do, then they can be released from from the bondage, right? Yep. And that's great advice. And it even gives a couple of examples, which are are pretty good. Um, yeah, there's this great material here to incorporate in a um, Avernus campaign. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, with, with all of the like secrets that go into creating characters for Avernus, uh, just th- this could factor in really nicely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and just the whole idea of making um, a, a deal with the devil, right? Or making a contract with the devil. Like you have to make sure that you are leaving enough leeway for the PCs to get in trouble, but still be able to get themselves out of trouble, right? And right. and not just be completely bound to a demon forevermore. Because then, I mean, the the number one item of of the pitch here is just okay, use the patron system from um, <laughs> Tasha's. Eberron or, or Tasha's, right? The, mm-hmm. the, that material is great. Tell the PCs up front, your patron sucks. Yeah. And I promise you will get to you know, break away from your patron and make it cool or like change your patron to being a good, good guy someday or whatever. But mm-hmm. I, we're starting the campaign with a patron that sucks. Just right. Are you willing to work with me on this? Okay, cool. Yeah. And like so many things, right? Talking to your players always helps a bunch, right? Yep. For sure. And that leads us to the next uh, portion, which is allying with the villain, which I have to say, there aren't very many examples that they go through in this book where I'm disappointed in the example they chose or didn't think it was illustrative enough of the points they're trying to make, but this is one of those cases. This example kind of is not working. It's yeah. a horrible example. It doesn't stick. No. Um, I I mean, twisting the PC's arms to ally with the villain, you know, narrative twisting, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, where you just mess around with the stakes and, and such until, no, that's actually the better choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That's about my favorite thing. Um, right. Or, I, I really like. I like it so much because it gives you another context with that villain for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Well, and then their idea. Well, you know, they were the PCs didn't know that they were allying with a villain. They thought they were making the right choice. Sure. They only find out later that the that can be done really well as as well. Um. Or they ally with someone who later becomes the villain. That's that's a good, you know, that's the good, that's a good example in here that they give, right? That whole thing with the uh the the knight, right, that 
that they that used to work with them and they helped get powerful and learn the rules and what that, and he went off and sort of took over a village and then became really a zealot uh, and turned basically evil. And so that's a great example because that's really easy to depict and, and also really easy to see, but because it's sort of a tangential thing, maybe the party doesn't realize until he's done some really bad stuff. And so therefore they know that villain, but is that really, the PCs allying with the villain, like I posit no. So even though the example is a good one here, it doesn't, it's not really quite giving me what I need in terms of their, what they're trying to put forth in this section. And the one with the dog, ugh, you know, the example with the dog. Yeah. It's just um, not, it's not a big so this reminds me of, I guess, spoilers, season two of Ted Lasso. Okay. There, there is a villain reveal at the end of season two of Ted Lasso that is very much. He seemed like a nice guy at the time. Mm, okay. I won't say any more than that for anyone who cares about Ted Lasso spoilers. Okay. But <laughs> it, it was controversial among fans of the show. I think it was handled amazingly, and as I've rewatched that season, it has really really landed well how meticulous they were in setting it up and showing the characters descent into being the villain Mm -hmm. right that's good it's really really nice the show's amazing um but um but yeah just the the thing about sharing a goal uh different objectives require cooperation Mm -hmm. um and competing for a goal those are all right. great to me those last part of this section are great but it's just with this this uh the beginning of this section excuse me the beginning of the section is just not that great but the last part yeah it's yep. very good yeah everything other than the dog example yeah right it yeah. is is actually great and just this is very very much your like okay you have a rival what kind of rival is it mm-hmm. right and yeah. the, the like the competing for a goal example is absolutely about that knife's edge between mm-hmm. uh, enemy and no, this guy's okay, actually. Right. Um, yep. Which just makes me think of Toy Story 3. We're just doing media tonight, guys, just media in general. <laughs> but the, the, the point in Toy Story 3 where the villain says, no, I'm a, real, I'm a villain for real. Mm-hmm. Get bent, you stupid toys. Yeah, <laughs> uh, obviously not quoting, but right. <laughs> uh, it is just straight up shocking the first time you see that movie. Yeah, because if you've seen a lot of Pixar movies, you're really expecting that you know, they're going to reveal the the inner humane parts of the game. No, mm-hmm. nope, nope. This guy <laughs> just sucks. Just deep down sucks. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Like that is a is a grim moment and great. Um so the next section is villainous tempter. Uh and we get another wow. look at how Bakshra operates here. Bakshra is the very first villain that was described when that they set up in the in the first chapter when they talked about how to create the villain and they had that sort of template 
going on. And so we're getting a little more of the story here and how he is twisting and tempting one of the, the PCs, presumably the PC, uh, to sort of go towards the dark side a little bit. And now um, we're back to some good examples again. <laughs> yeah, this example is great. It, it This is a really, really hard technique to, mm-hmm. to stick the landing on. To it, It's so easy to have this just be something that the player can easily reject because no, you're evil. I don't want to you know, cut a deal with you. You're evil. Mm-hmm. You've you've got to, I think, have some some seeds of doubt and seeds of pre-existing moral compromise, mm-hmm. um, just to get to a place where the scene can even work. Like the the example is so good, mm-hmm. but a big part of why it's so good is that the game that the writer is imagining has a genuine need uh, on the player's end for what the villain is offering. Right. It, it's not easily substituted for some of the thing. Right. And, and so, so here's can, where I feel like this is the impetus for ideals, bonds and flaws in fifth edition. And it's also where ideals, bonds and flaws fall down in fifth mm-hmm. edition, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. if that, if using ideals, bonds and flaws could be leveraged in this situation, then that would be perfect. It'd be beautiful. Yeah. And it would be a great mechanical integration of character building background and actually events that are occurring in the game and giving the PC and the player, uh, you know, a way to accept this, even though they don't want to, right? Yep. Like as the, as the as the PC to accept it, even though they don't want to, and well, a really right. good reason why. Right, and, and in a lot of ways, I think that um, you you need to understand your bond as what's something important enough to you to get you to make a bad decision, right? Um, in uh, and over the edge, it's called your trouble, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what is it that gets you to make a really bad decision? And maybe that bad decision is just going on the adventure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. What is it that gets you off your butt in the morning to go do the thing instead of turtling down and playing it safe? Right. That, that's also a, a kind of bad decision. Mm-hmm. Well, like, because I could see if this if this particular PC in this example. So, just for the audience, in the example, Bakshra basically has captured uh, one of the party members, one of the PCs, and um, basically uh, says, um, "If you tell me this information that I really want to know, I will give you access to this vast arcane library." And the PC, the particular PC that is captured, of course, is the is the wizard, right? So of course they want access to the arcane, whatever. Um, and so, you know, that collection of magical research that he's being offered an eyeball on is unrivaled in the world, and he can't help himself but at least consider it. And even though he says no at first, the villain then says, "Here, take this ring." 
And when you change your mind, you let me know and you can let me know through that ring. And so now there's this sort of bond, even though the PC said no, now there's in the back of his head, right? There's this idea of, ooh, maybe I could get access to that. And well, is the information I'm going to give him all that bad? You know, he could find it out otherwise. And, you know, it's not so bad. And he starts talking himself up into it, right? This is where a fifth edition PC wizard with the sage background, if they had an, an ideal or, or a bond that said, my goal in life is to seek knowledge and be surrounded only by the greatest knowledge ever. This would be so enticing for them that they couldn't say no. They would at least have to consider it just like the character in this little vignette did. Well, and the other great thing about the sage background is its feature that says, uh, if you don't already know it, you know where to find it. Well, mm. congratulations. I guess it's the library of fellow. We're, we're right. good. Right. 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 Like so, just, yeah. You can start hanging more and more reward mm-hmm. on right. getting to fellow until right. it's just a, a knife in the gut. And that's mm-hmm. perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. And the problem uh, I don't though, recommend knifing your players in the yeah. gut, except I totally yeah. do. And, you know, there are other games that you could do this into this, te- this particular technique, right? You right. can do this in fate games where you have fate points to trade back and forth, right? Cause you're being enticed. So you either going to get a fate point or you're going to give one to get out of that thing. Right. Uh, there's a whole economy there. There, there are other games where this could work quite well. Uh, you could make, you know, in something like, and now that I'm sort of going far afield here, but in something like um, the fantasy flight games version of star Wars, like edge of the empire, you could make, this seeker of knowledge have an obligation to find something that happens to be in this library right now that would be in a sci-fi situation and not this fantasy one but you get what i'm saying like there's a lot of games out there that build this sort of compelling component into the game system itself and D&D doesn't do that. And that's what makes it so hard. Even 5th edition with its ideals, bonds, and flaws, you're not compelled to use those, right? Uh, Even though they sort of kind of backhandedly attach them to getting an inspiration point, I, I, I would be interested to see the data on how many groups actually use inspiration points like that because relatively few, you know, the ones usually how I see it done is everybody gets an inspiration point at the beginning of the session and that's it. <laughs> right. Like, you know, right. Um, and so I, my point is fifth edition, you know, when we look at this and seeing how cool this is as a technique to use in your game and yet even after, you know, 26 years now since this was written or tw- whatever, 27, 28, whatever, we have not vastly improved or changed D&D such that it can handle this well. So this takes really high amounts of skill on the DM's part. I, I'm going to say, like, this is actually asking an awfully lot out of the fate point economy. Just... Yeah, I mean, I'm not the saying the relative value of fate points is kind of sure, sure. And I mean, in Numenera, it's just you could trade like, XP for something like this, right? Because right? it would be a great GM intrusion. I'm just saying that. I, yeah. I guess my point, and my point isn't really that you could should play. I'm not saying you should play a different game because they could do it better. My point is that a lot of other games have tried to integrate things into the system that would allow you to do this yeah. better, and pretty much none of them work because this is hard. It is hard, and you know there's there's part of it that the text is going to point out that players love like 
showing their coolness by heroically rejecting the temptation. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Right. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Right. Just making the temptation cool enough to give the player pause is the, the goal here. Right. And I mean, a huge thing here is just on a design level, making sure that everyone needs something. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's something that the the player on a mechanical level can really sink their teeth into, you know, on the order of wizards going to need spells, y'all. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, then that's great. Right. Um, you don't necessarily want every bribe to be a new magic item for the fighter, right? Right, right, right? And so one of the problems of fighter is they don't need enough stuff. They, once they have their stuff, they're, they're good. Um, and monks need even less. And so tempting them properly can be hard, right. um, especially if you need to do it more than once, especially if your player like, is able to step back and say, Hey, I can just say no to this and go on another adventure and get the item I want. Right, right, right. Uh, which is actually why I—it's another reason that I don't love the kind of uh, ten par- parcels per level approach of Fourie uh, treasure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm getting way off topic here. I, I, I see <laughs> that. Just I, I want to talk about how. Um, reward as part of narrative and uh, a reward with, you know, rat poison built into it is great. It's wonderful. And the, the more uh, players are guaranteed treasure as an inherent thing, mm-hmm. the less you can do that. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's one of the big flaws of fourth edition, right? Right. Is that they're to maintain the balance that is so exquisite in that system, they set it up so that you have to have certain magic items. And then later on, of course, the idea of inherent bonuses was was created so that you could right. get away from that a little bit. But by then everybody was already halfway in their campaign, right? So you it yep. was that was a little, yeah. So, but anyway. Um the thing I like about this section is this cost of compromise part. It really wants you to make sure that you know exactly what it means if the PC says yes, okay. Yep. And it's kind of a sneaky little text because it kind of does it as in you really want this to happen. You really want the PC to say okay. And here's how you're going to twist the knife after they say okay. But really what it's saying is be freaking careful because this could turn out so bad and fall on, you could fall on your face. Yep. Um, and, and their point about paladins and rangers is just a reminder that, man, second ed alignment restrictions on classes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nope. Not even once. Well, are we going to have this conversation again? <laughs> um. If you're if you are balancing the reward the NPC is going to give you against all of your class abilities, I guess it's not much of a temptation. Right. That's all. Yeah. Which is, I think that's fair. Like I, you know, I to me I don't have a problem with that. Right. Um, it it just 
Because the key there then, the, the key there and the skill there is trying to make the paladin think that giving into the temptation isn't going to cause them to lose their powers. Um, mm, I would be really worried about uh, the the blurred out-of-character communication line Mm -hmm. and just, sorry, you've lost all your powers. You're like a fighter, but less. Well, I mean. As as just, that's really tough. Yeah, Um, but see, that's where, but then that's where, yeah, I mean, this is a different conversation, but that's that's why this is such a hard technique, right? Yep. Because you can't just do that, right? That's not really, that's not going to make for a fun game for that paladin player, right? Right. It's just that that's, I mean, you you can change up what the what the rule book says and do something other other than what the rule book says, but that is straight up what the rule book says in second ed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. Uh, there's just so little even wiggle room in that language, right? Um, yeah, I guess the difference is that I'm okay with somebody playing a paladin that's required to be lawful good and therefore would never fall for this temptation. And I, w- I wouldn't be able to tempt them. Like, I'm okay with that. Right? Um, what, what I see is just... Uh, I can't do anything to tempt you. It, it takes all the tension out of the scene again and again and again. Well, for them, but there are other players in the in the game, right? Like there's other PCs in the party. That's just Could, not one of the ways that you try to to but to but can that paladin, paladin still right? can that paladin still participate if they give in, or is the paladin deciding for the whole party just by standing there? Like it, well, see, but, are they, are they but, see, but recognize that this isn't the whole group being tempted. This is one PC being tempted, but, right? Right. That's definitely what they're setting up in this example. Mm-hmm. Um, splitting the parties can be hard. Sure, but see, this is that's why I say this is so nuanced, right? Like, but for me, this is not a problem of oh, well, paladins have to be lawful good, so this will never work. Like, that's not how I that's not my response because I ought to, I don't, I don't have a problem with alignments being restrictive. Right. So for me, that just says that that's, this is not necessarily a technique I would try to use on that paladin because I know that that player is savvy and they're not going to decide to lose their powers because the villain is tempting them. Unless the, yeah. unless the PC, unless the player came to me previously and said, Hey, you know, I'm getting kind of tired of playing a paladin and I want right. to play something else. Can we find a cool way to work, write this paladin out of the game? That's when you could do it, and they could give in, and then you know, over a couple of sessions, shift alignment, suddenly lose their powers. But they knew, right? So I guess I'm just saying there are still good stories to be told there, and I'm not. I don't have the 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 sort of negative thoughts about alignment that a lot of people do, and that's those are valid feelings. I understand why alignment is not. You know, I play alignment with a lot of nuance and alignment has been used as a club for so long and by so many that it ends up being this hard topic to talk about. But for me, alignment is just sort of this array of guidelines regarding tendencies in action. And there's a lot of nuance within the different places there. It's not everything is an extreme. 
except I'm okay with paladins having to have alignment restrictions. Sure. Sure. All right. Let's, let's keep this moving. <laughs> let's yeah. keep this moving. Um, so evil within the party. Um, this is another, another tricky one. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. If someone is uh, temporarily or uh, permanently by control or free will, uh, a bad guy in the party, well, mm-hmm. we'll be careful. We'll be careful. Yeah. Just, you know, we, we've read advice about this plenty of times mm-hmm. and decide for your table whether the technique is the players know the characters don't or what. Yeah. Or, or if you're actually keeping secrets all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I've done you know, all of the above. Yeah. And I mean, in LARPing, yeah. it's definitely um, the players keep secrets from each other. That's mm-hmm. just that's the, the community understanding in right. the LARPs that I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've been in situations where there was some real hurt feelings because, right. I mean, the player was doing bad stuff and <laughs> then they got got and then right. the punishment fell on them. Yeah. And it was following strictly in character lines, but ooh, like mm-hmm. th- that character is super dead now. They're yeah. they're not. No one's going to bring them back because everyone who could bring them back agrees they shouldn't come back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like the 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 risks around uh, hurt feelings are are very serious there, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. kind of what can you do? Yeah, you have to. If this is going to be an option in in your game, that one of the one of the PCs might reveal themselves to have been an evil entity, an evil being, an evil creature, or someone with evil intent um, over time, you have to play that real, real hard. I mean, it's tough to do that, especially if it's secret. Uh, I had a, I had actually in one of my fourth edition campaigns, one of the players came to me and he was moving and we all knew he was moving and he'd only had a few uh, sessions left. And Uh he came to me two sessions before his last session. And he said, I think I want to explore this thing that he found. And I think, I think I know what it is. And I think that if I explore, it's going to make me evil. Is that true? And I was like, yes. And he said, is there a way I can do that and be okay with me fighting with the rest of the party? And I was like, if you want to do that, let's talk about how we're going to do that. Are you going to tell the other players? Are you going to like, what, how do you want to do this? And, and we talked a lot about it. And then in the last session, he revealed himself as a traitor basically. And uh, it was during a fight with the big bad. And he basically showed that he was on the big bads he had a choice to make and um i set it up like that because i thought i wanted him to have a chance to change his mind right and uh and he didn't he, he didn't change his mind he he full-on turned and then the, the the rest of the party had to kill him yep along with the big bad so you know um, um it was I mean- it was interesting in that it was a little bit satisfying but uh, I think a couple of the players were 
at the end of the game, you know, we all talked about it. And, um, you know, during the, during the reveal, he said, you know, no, I've been, I've been basically, you know, this, this alignment, you know, for a while, see, look, it's on my sheet. And one of the other players was like, what does it say? Lawful, you know, yeah, (laughs) and, you know, and, and so it's kind of like, yeah, it was surprising and shocking to them, but, you know, their, their PCs were pissed off because they had a traitor in the midst and they didn't really know it. Sure. I don't know that I would do it the same looking back. Um, it turned out fine. They were, everybody was okay at the end, you know? Um, but I feel like it was too quick of a switch. Of course he, you know, we, cause there was only two sessions where he could start showing his true colors. Right. And I feel like if there's really going to be a reveal like that to make it fair, there needs to be a lead time that would allow the other players to discover it, or at least start seeing red flags here and there. And get to deny it a little bit, you know, Oh no, I, I must be just, you know, whatever. Yep. Um, and then it's more, it's more impactful, but um, you know, I mean the uh, third ed game I ran in college, um, there was a situation where a PC got uh, isolated and instead of uh, she ran into one of the main villains by herself mm-hmm. and instead of just murdering the character, um, I had her get mind controlled and just, okay, at some point in the future, when you think you can do the most damage, you'll, you'll flip on the party. And it was very ham handed and I wouldn't mm-hmm. do it that way again, but <laughs> like I was doing my best to mm-hmm. carry off some of this idea here. Um, right. You know what? Sometimes you got to do stuff the wrong way to figure out what's wrong. Yeah. And I've also had this happen in a, in groups where everybody knew and they, cause, because the thing that turned the, the, the PC evil was an item, you know, uh, or, a you know, a curse or whatever. And they can play that pretty well uh, and, and sort of feign ignorance of it at first until they start seeing all the signs and all that. And that's, that's okay. That's not quite what it's talking about here specifically. Um it does kind of, you know, to, well, if they're under a spell or if they're, you know, whatever, like, how do you deal with it? You know, and it's very different from, oh, well, a doppelganger killed that PC and took over his body, you know, or, or yep. took his form. Um, you know, that those are sort of, I don't know, this, this is, uh, again, this is in chapter eight, because it's a hard thing to pull off. And, you mm-hmm. you know, you do have to talk to your table beforehand about whether, you know, depending on how your players are and how everyone, how, how, how your game works, whether it's even a good idea or not, you'll know. Yep. Yep. And, and honestly, there's a piece of it that we kind of can't talk about enough. That's just, um, Hey, sometimes you're going to try stuff that doesn't work. Sometimes you're going to destroy the whole campaign. Mm -hmm. That's going to happen. Yeah. Um, sometimes this campaign you've been playing for four years suddenly doesn't seem like a good idea anymore. Right. The best I can tell you is to get back on the horse. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, sometimes it takes a couple weeks of uh, of deconstruction in your in your own mind after something bad really happens to figure out okay, what the hell was that? <laughs> right. Yep. Um, and that's okay. That's 
you know, nobody starts being a DM and suddenly becomes the perfect GM that can run every game perfectly every time. And every session is better than the last. And then they're a God like that doesn't, that's not human. Right. Right. Everybody has good sessions and bad sessions and good decisions and bad decisions and poor planning and good planning. And then, you know, then there's the fact that there's also, you know, between two and four five, six other people at the table. Right. Yep. So, um, so the next section is the villain survival instinct, which is the thing I was talking about of just what's the villain's deal for mm-hmm. like, if, they're, if they're a rational actor, they probably plan a way out. Right. Yep. Right. Yep. Uh, and for, for you on a gameplay level, like it's nice if the villain can build heat in person mm-hmm. and like still be in the later encounter. Um, so they're they're dealing with some of the issues around that. Mm-hmm. Um, the the box text is very much uh, a no no corpse no kill example, which right. is classic for a reason. Right, right. And but then it does talk about what if they do die and how do you yep. how do you repair that or you know what choices do you make and um, things like that. So. Uh, then it talks about um, giving the villain an Achilles heel, right? So they might seem to come back and keep recurring and recurring, but there has to be some way for the party to find out how to actually defeat them. Right. And in the the fifth ed DMG, uh, it talks about villains having a true death, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? There's, a, I think, a table of true deaths for, right. for your villains. Yeah. Um, I am personally a big fan of you know your your tier three and tier four villains are are just not killable by ordinary stabbing means. They've mm-hmm. got true deaths, right. and the, they'll they'll reform or whatever mm-hmm. whatever their true death recovery or right. normal death recovery method is. Mm-hmm. That will happen until you accomplish the true death. So you have right. multiple encounters with them. Right. Uh, I realize not everyone feels that way, but well, that that's me. Yeah. Right? No, for sure. Um, uh, but uh, the villain's Achilles heel is is really a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, um, magic as equalizer is uh, wow. This section needs to be a lot longer for my taste. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, it's a little th- this is this is something that I've kind of talked about uh you know in, in twitter with a friend of mine is i think of it as the move and counter move of mm-hmm. you know powerful spellcasters right um how do you prepare for all the different things pcs can do and still have cool tricks up your sleeve that are actually a problem for them right um, right and you know collections of uh the, the villain does this series of things to pull off that dirty trick, you know, that's all to the good. Surprising players is hard. Players are mm-hmm. jaded, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, yeah. This section is woefully short. I definitely agree with that. And the example is a little bit lame. <laughs> yeah. It's tough. I mean, it's, you know, it's very generic. Um, and that's fine. Yep. That's fine. 
Um, and then it talks about redeeming your villain and how occasionally there might be a villain who is worthy yeah. of redemption and wants to redeem themselves, but then still is going to die. Right. It's just, right. they're redeeming themselves first. Well, right. And, and redemption storylines have uh, had various peaks and valleys of being mm-hmm. in vogue right. uh, since this was written. Mm-hmm. Um Right now, I think that a lot of the conversation is around, hey, you know, one good deed is not a redemption arc. Right. They, they haven't yeah. redeemed anything. Yeah, yeah. They just, you know, died having done one good thing. Right. Right. Uh, and they do, to be fair, they give, you know, this whole, there. there's a whole page of talking about a conversion experience and how to, you know, how to give options or choices or produce scenes where the villain has a chance to, you know, provide some sort of redemptive value to themselves. Um, In fact, this gets so much more ink than the magic as an equalizer gets that, uh, you know, it's kind of sad a little bit. They both deserve a lot of ink. Um, They really do. And, you know, what can you say about page count limits, right? Right. Um, Yep. I will say that the magic is an equalizer section. I feel like it could be greatly expanded, but I feel like almost like the expansion would be maybe addition specific almost. Maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, we can. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree with that. I agree that like um, one of the things about, about fourth edition that made it tougher for me to engage with deeply in um, Paragon and Epic tier is that it didn't really shift to a you know move counter move dynamic. Mm-hmm. It it stayed in a dynamic that was fairly marginal elaboration in terms of strategic rather than tactical gameplay. Right. On you know heroic tier, it was mm-hmm. basically the same, mm-hmm. and yep. that's disappointing to me. Yeah. And Fifth edition is kind of trending away from really engaging with strategic interplay at tier three and tier four, and that's deeply disappointing to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By really reducing the spellcasting, qua spellcasting that uh, NPCs do at those tiers. Right. Right. But back on topic. <laughs> then it has uh, this um, very short section on having a guest come in and run a villain. I've done that before. I, I have as well. And I have been the guest villain uh, at times. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I was the guest villain in this case. Yeah. I was the, the final boss of uh, a Rise of the Rune Lords campaign. Oh, awesome. I, I th- yeah. Well, I think because my friend who is the GM wanted me to see how um, completely unfair and really ultimately unfun the PC's abilities were. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the villain wow. just yeah. got just got dunked on for about three rounds. But yeah. It, it was nothing to do. Yeah. I Yeah. <laughs> that is not a level range at which uh, Pathfinder 1 was functional. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then, um, then it kind of shifts gears, and it it goes into the uh, a section about raising the emotional stakes. 
of of the game and of of the interactions with the villain and it talks about uh suffering and sacrifice and danger and warnings and foreshadowing Mm -hmm. and just how these things could these things could cause more connection between the pcs and the overall world and the the situation that everyone in the game setting is in because the villains horrible acts right yeah i think that i think that's really useful and important um it's also only too easy to kind of wallow in some of these Mm -hmm. uh wallowing in suffering everyone knows what that looks like i've been in games that wallowed in sacrifice that's yeah rough mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's a sense that nothing could ever be resolved if it doesn't have um character ending consequences for at least one player mm-hmm. right. that, that that's pushing a little far there yeah. um and that's just a like, this works in a novel but it doesn't really hit the same in a game mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, Unless it's the last encounter, in which case, okay, fine. Right. It, it, are you the paladin who's sacrificing himself to destroy once and for all the big bad evil? Right. Then you are heroically sacrificing yourself to save everyone. That's like awesome. That's a badass for a paladin, right? Or for anybody yep. really, but especially for a paladin, if they, yeah, for especially sure. if they've been tempted and declined it or something, right? Like there's a whole arc there, and if the arc ends with the character sacrificing himself to save everybody else, and it's the end of the campaign, hey, that's awesome. I mean, I especially like uh, times that uh, wizards sacrifice themselves to to hold off the the onrushing. I'll call it a battle. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Telling them they can't pass, you mean? Like they're I mean, just, they're, they're going to get the F. They're not passing class right. no matter what. Yeah. Right. The, the yeah. wizard presumably does not know how the rest of this encounter is going to yes. go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Because the, the wizard doesn't know they're going to be fine and they're just going to mm-hmm. like, get rebuilt for the next novel. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, one of my favorite scenes in anything <laughs> ever. I saw a meme the other day and it was like, damn, that Gandalf chased us all the way and then took care of the Balrog himself and used all the XP to get some sweet loot and level up. <laughs> anyway, he, he, so. he, had to, he had to smite that Balrog's ruin upon the mountainside. That is, yeah. that yeah. is not easy work. All right? That's true. Very true. Um, <laughs> so. So danger and warnings. And I mean, all of this is really good advice. Um, yeah. This I, is just basic technique. Yeah. Um, but key, like it's so, foundational technique is what I'm trying to say. It's so foundational, foundational. It should be, it should be in a previous chapter to be perfectly honest. That's pretty fair. Yeah. Um, but it's okay. I mean, it's, it's good advice. It's just, it doesn't quite match with the sort of very nuanced, very tough, you know, advanced DMing that's in the, previous parts of that chapter um but it's okay uh and so it brings us out of chapter eight and into chapter nine and yep. chap- chapter nine is a compendium of villains and basically what chapter nine is doing is it takes the sort of template 
that is presented in the first chapter about how to flesh out your villain and how to create this backstory and do all these things and history and behavior and attitudes and motivations and all that stuff. And then it, it applies that to the different villains that it has used in the examples in this book previously. So it does dark on the uh, human male fighter. Um, it does uh, Pingo, one of the other uh, uh, people in the later chapters. It does uh, Mervis, who is a person who was not presented in any of the examples, um, but it actually addresses that in a in a in a way. It talks about okay, well, this person wasn't talked about, but we think they're interesting as an example, so they provide it. Um, Azusol, which is the um, the the succubus that was the the genie, little girl genie. Um, and then uh, Thodo, which is uh, one of the uh, bounty hunters from a previous example. And um, uh, it doesn't give Bakshra again because Bakshra was in the first chapter. That's That was the example there. And then it gives a couple of examples of um, it gives a cult and a secret police force that's a hierarchical structure. Um, the cult is a network. And then it gives a, a hierarchical freedom fighter type um society structure and it sort of does those out as worked examples and that's basically all of the chapter i'm not sure that we need to talk about any of that i mean yeah i, I do like the worked examples of the of the networks and the hierarchies those are kind of nice yep. they they once again show that you only need a couple of sentences in each part to to make a good solid entry so that's good um, um, yeah, they, they all. This is three different good things to have covered mm-hmm. as villain groups. Solid, mm-hmm. solid move here. Um, yeah, they're not the most bog standard of choices. They're right. not terribly ultra, but they're not the bo- most bog standard. So mm-hmm. well done. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but we don't need to read them into the record. Right, and yeah, yeah. they're just. Um, putting into practice what we've covered before. Um, But that that will then bring us to chapter 10, a catalog for villains. And so this chapter is split into two parts. The first part is a discussion on where the villains get their power. And the second part is basically a laundry list and um, some rolly tables uh, some random random tables uh, with all of the sort of attributes and goals and motives and all that stuff that have been talked about previously in the book. So, so all those places in the book previously, when I said, oh, I wish they put a random table of this in here, um, they kind of do a little bit, but it's in the last chapter, um, which is yep. good. But I like the sources of power section. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a little bit... Um, you know, 40 power sources, right? It is, but it's all, but if you think about when this was being created, right, they were doing, you know, uh, spells and, and power, oh. they were doing, you know. Oh, oh for sure. It's not, know. that's not even a complaint. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's um, just uh, modes yeah. of thought about characters, right? Right. But also it's not just the, it's not just the 40 power sources too. I mean, of course they start out with, with arcane and wizardly and clerical powers, but then it talks about and and psionic, right. But then it talks about skills, right. How the skills could give an individual power in a situation, or if their if their power is political, right. Or if their power is military or economic or social, 
um, or if it comes from some unnatural source, right? Like, because remember, we're talking about the villains now, not the PCs. So we're right. talking about how this villain. So this is a good follow-on to chapter eight. Because in chapter eight, we talked about, okay, well, how do you create a villain? And now that villain has to leave and go away and become powerful over some time, and then they need to return, right? So these power sources, it's telling you how they could learn to wield power in different ways so that when they come back to you and you have the villain return, they actually are powerful. And honestly, even even outside of the constructs of the way that this book has presented villains and whatnot, just reading this sources of power section is a really nice uh, little, you know, five or six page treatise on, you know, what does it look like if a villain gets all their power from political machinations or or from military power or from social you know, influence. Like, what does that look yep. like? What does a mixture of those look like? And those are good things to think about for any GM. Yeah, um, I think they undersell individual ability and skills. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, I think they. I think that looking at some of the um, names baddies of the MCU is a really good example of how, like, maybe they're not the the top dog of their organization, mm-hmm. but there's certainly someone who matters in, in their organization. I mean, there's nothing more unbelievable to me than how well the MCU has made Batroc the Leaper work <laughs> as a character. Yeah. Like that makes no sense, but here yeah. we are. Yeah. And that character um, stuck the landing like that, that really worked. Yeah. Um, well, and as I mentioned earlier, there aren't very many examples in this book that I find just not useful. This one is the most ridiculous, stupid example I have. I mean, this is one that, you know, the other one that I said wasn't that great. It just kind of, those two just kind of don't hit the mark. They're just kind of weak as examples, but they're not bad examples. They're just not very good ones, right? They're not like, oh, that this one is so ridiculous and stupid. It's just dumb. It's just really dumb. It's premise rejection. Yeah, it, it it fundamentally rejects the premise that it should be arguing for, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's yeah, don't do that. Yeah. What, yeah what, so when I say really it undersells bad. it, that's what I'm that's what I'm yeah, getting yeah. at. It's it's just um, so bad. It's so bad. But like, yeah, I, I could go on about this for a long time, yeah, yeah. but instead, just go watch um, <laughs> Black Widow and see what I'm talking about. With mm-hmm. yeah, no, the the skills are sometimes enough. Uh, mm-hmm. If you yeah. just take them to super heroic levels, mm-hmm. right. anyway, right. Um, and that means providing opportunities for them to show off those skills and show, uh, even tangentially or with collateral effects, how powerful they actually are. Yep. So, anyway, so that leads us to a, a listing of bad objectives. So the, this is bad object. It, it, that's what it's actually named that section, but it's really just objectives that villains would use. In other words, yep. objectives, objectives for doing bad stuff. Right, right. And this is actually a bunch of, it has a little mini subheadings, but it's like, a, you know, 50 or so bullet points that are really just, um, they're actually story hooks, right? Yep. Uh, for example, a charming suitor proposes or pursues marriage with a wealthy PC, planning to kill the PC and seize the fortune, 
or an evil cleric is driven to gain magical power and raise his wife from the dead. The woman's father hires the PCs to stop him. Or a bitter fighter wants to exterminate all halflings for having killed his father. Yeah, not all of these are great. As uh, I just, okay. I mean, I, there's yeah. a reason I read those three examples, right? Yeah, <laughs> some of them are are wonderful, and some of them are not, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, what I love about these uh, you know, individual objectives is that this is just item by item found in the fifth edition DMG in mm -hmm. chapter four, mm -hmm. there's a specific table that is just this. Mm -hmm. And that's great. Like good advice is a thing of beauty and joy forever. Yep. And here we are. Yep. Um, and then, and then it goes on with bad motives and gives a list. Yep. Bad personality traits gives a list. And, and a slight description, right? So so when I say, uh, so the bad modes, it just gives a list because it already talked about all of those in chapter one, but then right. bad personality, you know, it, it gives, you know, avaricious, envious, nihilistic, gluttonous, insane, but then it gives a slight description of how each of these could lead to villainous behavior, right? Yep. Um, and then we have several tables. So yep, we have a tons, table. tons of tables and... Mm -hmm. They're also very recognizable yep. in the fifth edition DMG, and then uh, Table Six General Traits is literally just copy pasted yeah, yeah. out and, of and the second say DMG. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. say that. They say that's where it came from. But the the bad methods, for example, is uh, is you know <laughs> methods that or behaviors or activities that the villain could perform that would be you know uh, could be used for insidious goals desecration cannibalism blinding um eviction right like it, it runs the gamut because it has to cover all of those power bases and all of those motivations right if you're well it also if, runs the gamut because it has to fill out a d100 table well yes yes but i mean it's a d100 table because it's covering yeah. immortality wealth political power revenge right all of those sort of uh goals that are you know what behavior would you have to perform if your goal was this, right? Yep. And so that brings us to the end of DMGR6. That book is a corker. Yes, it is. It is, it is something, isn't it? It isn't flawless, but this book stands up. There's nothing that uh, really puts it out of usefulness for a, a uh, fifth edition DM right now. Mm -hmm. Or as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, there's a reason I went off on the, I, I sort of went off script on our intro. It is useful for other, I mean, I could use this for castles and crusades. Oh, for sure. Right? For sure I could sure. use this for my traveler game. I could use, you know, a villain is a villain is a villain it, from a certain point of view, right? Where yep. your genre might be different or the setting might be different or the situation might be a little bit different. But to get an idea of how a villain, what drives that villain and, and what that villain might be, what their motivation is, what their goals might be, how they might try to gain those goals and what their power is coming from. I mean, that that crosses a wide spectrum of usefulness. Um, and, and it's pretty rare that I see a game that has anything new to say about villains. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
Right. Not not never. I haven't actually done a survey of all of the books on my shelf to make sure that's true. But sure. nothing's coming to me about, hey, they really said something new about villains there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I want to go through some of the chapters of this and just talk about Gideon the Ninth. Because, folks, I always want to talk about Gideon the Ninth. <laughs> that book is amazing. Um, just for everyone's benefit, because I've been doing a lot of media commentary. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a is a really so the, the book is Dungeon Crawl. Um, okay, it, it's a high character interaction dungeon crawl, and one of the conceits is that uh, the the top level of this dungeon, because the whole dungeon is uh, an imperial palace, the top mm-hmm. level of the dungeon is a safe zone where all the different teams will be cool and talk instead of fight. Okay. But when they're down in the dungeon, who knows? Maybe <laughs> they're friends, maybe they aren't. Yeah. And I mean, what an amazing premise. Uh, yeah, nice. I, I don't care how you justify it. Do something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, because it means that the, the PCs can have exchanges with the other with, with their competitors in places where it's okay and then in places where is it okay right i don't know right, right. now now we can find out yeah 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 and those contrasts are just great um and then harrow the ninth is, is also a completely amazing book in a utterly different way mm-hmm. and you should just read them it's lesbian necromancers in space folks i don't know what to tell you these <laughs> books are amazing all right well that actually is a great lead into tomorrow's episode where we're going to talk about the complete book of necromancers yes. <laughs> which which I'm is... going to need a magnifying glass. I'm excited about this. <laughs> Which is uh, DMGR7, the seventh in the series of ninth books. So, so, so that's what we're going to talk about. So uh, I'm going to go get my glasses and start reading right now and my magnifying glass, as Brandis said. So Brandis, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. Uh, I write for tribality.com. My uh, personal blog is brandisstoddard.com and my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. How about you, Sam? I uh, can be found on Twitter at DM Samuel, or you can find me, uh, and I'm DM Samuel on various blogs and discords and all that stuff. So uh, if you see a, a symbol that's a sort of beige background and a green dragon that looks like he's eating a red Christmas tree, that is me, and it's the same person everywhere. Anyway, uh, and I'm also on the Tome Show, and I can be found on the web at rpgmusings.com. And so with that, I thank you, and Merry Christmas, and we will... Talk to you next time.